Hello and welcome to A Cast of Entrepreneurs, brought to you by the Entrepreneurs Forum. I'm Elaine Stroud, Chief Executive of the Entrepreneurs Forum. We've been talking to entrepreneurs from all over the Northeast about what it's really like to be an entrepreneur. We're getting the real insight into their lives and businesses. Well, good morning and welcome to another episode of our cast of entrepreneurs. I'm really pleased with our cast today. We've got some wonderful people to talk to and I'd like to introduce them to you now. So first up, we have Sarah Callender from Duo Consulting. Hi. Hi, Sarah. And alongside Sarah, we have Joe Feely from Trend Bible. It's lovely to see you again. See you too. And joining the cast today, we also have Rob Brown from Jump. Hi. Great. And shall we just get started? I think it's best if we just jump straight into the questions. And to start with, we're going to go back in time, clearly not very far, but back to our youth and try to understand what motivated you to get started in business. So I'm going to start with Joe, I think. And if you can remember when you were back as a teenager, maybe 16, 17, finishing up school, did you think at that point you were going to end up running your own business? No, not at all. I mean, it didn't really cross my mind. I wanted desperately to work in the fashion industry and that seemed like a massive stretch. I can remember sort of my dad saying to me, how many people do you know that live where we live in rural Northumberland that are fashion designers? And so even becoming you know, even getting into my dream career seemed really unfeasible at that time. And I hadn't even, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind that I could run a business and be, well, an entrepreneur, really. Did you know anyone at that stage who ran their own businesses? Yes, my dad, who's a builder. So, and and his dad was a builder as well. So in the traditional trades in our family, I knew quite a lot of people that were, were doing that. And I could see at the coal face, what that looked like. And it looked like a lot of hard work and it looked like, you know, organising lots of people. Um, but yeah, I hadn't really thought of running a business or putting myself in that situation. For me, that was just how you run a business when you were a builder. I hadn't associated any of that until much later when my dad started to give me business advice about how to run my business. And the fashion side of things, was that something that was always inside of you that you wanted to get into fashion? Was that something that you were inspired to do through school? Not through school, because I lived in you know a, t- a tiny hamlet with not even a library, not even a shop, not a pub, not- it had nothing. We lived right out in the sticks. And I can only... I mean, the, the tiny bits of culture that I sort of remember coming through with things like watching the clothes show on TV and occasionally we'd get to a newspaper shop and I'd see a fashion magazine, but I never could buy one. So there were these tiny little trickles coming through from sort of music and fashion. And I just wanted more of that. And I think the more that I sort of, as I grew up, I started to realise I was in this very rural environment and sort of the exciting stuff was happening elsewhere. And obviously even things like trends, you know, I remember all of the trends people used to say, well, they get to the north of England and the northeast last, you know, with the last people to get the trends, everything starts in London. So from a really early age, I can remember being sort of, my mentality was primed that the exciting stuff is outside of here it's elsewhere but you didn't stay outside of here (laughs) (laughs) I did yeah I did yeah and that couldn't have happened when I was sort of in my early 20s you know I had to go to London I went to New York and London to to work in the fashion industry that's one of the the things I like the most is being able to bring those creative jobs back to a region where I I couldn't get a job here doing that 
which is fantastic. So tell us how you ended up setting up Trend Bible. You mentioned that you worked in London and New York. At what point did you decide, I think I can do this for myself? Well, very naively after I'd worked for a small trend forecasting agency and thought, well, it doesn't look that hard. I know how to forecast trends. So surely I just have to kind of bolt on a little bit of sales and marketing and a bit of finance. And, you know, I, I was aware there were other things that people did inside that business that I didn't do, but I really underestimated all of that stuff. Yeah, I just, I wanted to freelance. I didn't want to set up a business. I wanted to work for myself. And the plan was just to work with a, a small group of clients and work on my own in my spare bedroom. That was my dream. And all that happened was, so there was more work came in than I'd anticipated. And I didn't want to leave it on the table. I wanted to be able to keep growing. And so I had to hire my first employee to do that. And now I think up to 22 people. We'll come on to learning a little bit more about how you've scaled that business. But I'm going to ask Sarah now, when you were younger, same question to you, did you think that you would end up being a successful business owner? Absolutely not. No, I think when I was younger, I think looking back, I had lots of subliminal influences that I didn't recognize at the time as influences. And I, I'd say that's still true today. So similar to Joe's story, like my dad had his own business, a family business in construction. And, you know, I just saw him, that was his choice. It was a career pathway for him. I've always had difficulty making decisions on choices. So I've always loved like the idea of having variety in choice. So I think for me, I, I even struggled to decide on what degree to do because I just couldn't make a decision on what that career looked like. So I never had a specific thing I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to work with great people. I wanted adventure. I wanted excitement. I wanted to try new things. So for me, and, and even, you know, looking at my journey before I got involved in starting businesses, before I, before I joined Duo, it was, I fell into a lot of what happened to me. I took the opportunities. I met really interesting people and they opened doors. And most of those people were entrepreneurs. And I, I was drawn to them, like a moth to a light. I was like literally drawn to those people. So I think subconsciously I had that in us, but I never recognized it as entrepreneurship or desire to run my own business. It was a desire to do something different with, with people and and have great people around us. Um, but I've had some key sort of influences along the way that I never recognised as influences, if that makes sense. it's I moved abroad and I ended up working for a lady who I lived on a little island, a French island called Reunion. And I, I met a lady there and she was a real entrepreneur. And I was 25. She was selling important swimming underwear and selling it across the island. And I got a job with her. And people just loved buying from an English woman. So I, I did really well. And I just loved working for her and with her, expanding our business. And I fell into that role. And I came back and then I managed to get a, another job with another really entrepreneurial spirit. And I kind of I felt, I, you know, even I met Laura, another real entrepreneur with that kind of spirit. And I think it, it, it's that, it's the connection with people who then... I then want to work with. I think that's more my motivation than thinking I need to achieve X and I'm going to set my goal on that. I have a very different motivation. I think for being in business and owning a business and, and, and co-owning a business with someone else. So when you joined Duo and joining Laura, who'd founded the business, tell us about your desire to then 
join and become a business owner yourself? Yeah. So I was working for a business called Ground Six. Um, I had been asked to join that business to make investment decisions in tech startup ideas. And so it was with a, a financier, a gentleman called Roy Stanley. And um, so I got like four or five years of this experience of investing in tech startup ideas and wrapping a business around it and wrapping people around the ideas. So which was an amazing opportunity. So I got to to really have an experience of running my own business. But it, you know, it it was it was with it was with Roy and I loved that. And then Laura and I's paths met. She actually came to do some work for us. We're looking to expand in America, which she had a lot of experience in. At the same time I had gone away to learn human behavior. I was training in it and I just thought it was amazing. And Laura the business at the time, Laura had set up very much focused around like culture and recruitment and recruitment strategy. And she was running a, a successful business. And we joined forces when she went on and did some of the behavioral training that I had done. We just were like, we need to put this in business. We just need to. And it was around the time I was exiting out of B Daily and Ground Six. And we decided it was easier for me to join the business because she was already running a thriving business, right? We jo- I joined forces and, and we've evolved the business and threaded through that behavioral element over the last sort of four or five years. But yeah, we realized we were we were meant to work with each other. And for me, that was that was the piece that was like, right, we can do amazing things. Laura's quite achievement driven and goal driven. And my motivations are very much more around like the people and client experience and the team. And so when you put those two motivations together, it's where the magic happens really. So I think for me, then becoming you know, a, a giant owner with, with Laura was like, we've got this vision and we've got a shared vision and, and you know, we've got goals in place to, to take the business forward. But that was, I would never have wanted to do that on my own. I think I did a little bit of freelance work for a while and I found it quite lonely to be fair. So I know a lot of entrepreneurs, they'll, they'll start a business and off they go. And it's it's very much, they've got their own personal goal. I think we're lucky that we we share a lot of our goals, although we challenge each other a lot, but I wouldn't have wanted to do it on my own. Yeah, interesting. Whereas Rob, you are doing it on your own. Um, when you were younger, were you always, did you have that entrepreneurial itch inside you that you wanted to sort of run your own business? Well, cast, uh, this, I'm probably the, I am the oldest person in the room here. Cast your mind back to... Uh, the summer of 1982, when my mum and dad sacrificed a three-piece suite, as they called them in those days, <laughs> and they bought me a, a Sinclair ZX81. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Your listeners might. And I came in one Sunday afternoon and saw my dad trying to set this computer up, connected to the TV. And from that moment, I was mesmerised and I knew that I wanted to have a career in computers. But in those days, I mean, the internet wasn't even invented. You had a dial-up modem. I don't even know if anybody would remember what that sounds like. I can tell you what it sounds like. but um, sound I don't want to go back to. No. I think that's <laughs> And people still say these days, oh, I'll, I'll dial-up and I'll, you know, that's what we used to do in those days using the telephone. And I, I never went to university. I don't have a degree. I wasn't very good at school. I did GCSEs. As, a, as an adult sitting in a, in a hall with a children when they were doing their GCSE, I was doing mine as night school because I was determined to try. And I felt that I needed some qualifications because I knew I wanted to work with computers. And I had the chance to join an iTech, an information technology centre. The first one in the UK was in Cromington. And the computers that you had access to were just incredible. They're not, not so much now because obviously technology's moved on so much. And I just knew that 
I wanted to have a career. I never thought about working for myself. Didn't like taking instructions from people because I was I'm pretty stubborn. And I started working for a local company that gave advice to people who were setting up a business. And I was a data services assistant. So I was earning four and a half thousand pounds a year by the time I was 19. I mean, what that? I, I don't know what that money would be in today's or a currency. So, and so I just moved from job to job, being in the right place. My dad had a, an amazing work ethic. So he was a foreman in Blythe Power Station before it was, it was demolished. He never owned a business, but he was always working. And I guess that's where my ethic has come from. And then I, I set up, I started to work for Rolls Royce, the aero engine company. And that really demonstrated to me the type of technology that was around. I was, it was amazing time to, uh, to see that technology. I had an opportunity to start my own business. Uh, the manager that I had at the time, who's was no longer with us, unfortunately, I just didn't agree with some of the stuff he was asking me to do. I was quite challenging as an employee because I was stubborn. And I decided that the DSS and Hong Benton, remember the DSS? They paid me £30,000 to develop an access database. And I thought, I've got enough experience. If it doesn't work, I can get myself another job. But I really want to try that. And I've never looked back. I've developed business over the years, always developing software. This is before the internet was even started, was even imagined. I remember Bill Gates saying at the time, the internet will never take off. And look, look where we got it. So yes, I was developing these, these kind of database and software solutions. I believe I have this ability to see what solution looks like in my mind when I speak to a customer about their requirements. And that's all I want to do. I just want to make sure that we deliver a solution that I, um, and I knew I could do it myself. So after that contract ended, I decided to look for something else. And over the years, that's that's what I've done. I merged my business in 2007. Jump's been very successful over the years. We've grown, we've reduced in size. We're now a team of 17. Would you call yourself an entrepreneur today? Well, what is an entrepreneur? I guess that what is the definition of an entrepreneur? I think it's somebody who takes a risk, isn't it? And I enjoy taking risks. I wouldn't say I was a massive risk taker, but for me, I, I surround myself with people who know things, who can help me, and they almost persuade me. I suppose that, that taking a risk every now and then is, is a good thing to do. How do you, how do you know if it's going to work or not unless you, you take a risk? Absolutely. And I think all three of you, from what you've explained, took a risk on yourselves. You actually all backed yourself. And maybe you didn't think that was a risk because you were all confident in your own abilities when you decided to go out there by yourselves. It's interesting, actually, because we've now recorded a number of these episodes and talking to people that influences on them in their youth has actually shaped what type of business and a leader that they've become. And that might be whether they had parents who were entrepreneurs, and that is very, very common. Or like you said, Rob, your father had a really strong work ethic, and that's been passed down to yourself. Yes. I mean, it's um, it's funny. My father passed away during COVID, but my mum still has this cupboard where all his computer stuff is. And I think he developed this interest in computers because of me. When, I, when we launched Jump in 2007, this is our 16th year, and which is an achievement, of course. I we were we had a piece in the journal, and my dad had this still on the wall. At Sixteen years old, it was on the wall, and every time he sat in front of the computer, he would obviously look at this piece, and it's still there today. And he always said 
to me that you're going to be a millionaire. And I I didn't stop a business. I'm not a millionaire, by the way. (laughs) I don't have any interest in becoming a millionaire. Um, That's not what I do, why I do what I do. It's it's about, um, I suppose, developing the people who work with me and jump for them to be a success. That's really what it's about. It's interesting that though, isn't it? That whole piece around like what motivates you to do what you do. And when you think about that word entrepreneurship, it's it's such a it's such a big word. Like I would never describe myself as an entrepreneur, but labels and titles are a bit tricky for me. Yes. Like uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a thing that comes natural. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs would probably say the same thing. You maybe hear that, Elaine. But that piece around like influencing, taking influence and pe- people that influence you, and then you influencing them, is a is a really lovely piece. I think the thing about that word entrepreneur, although. I'm much more sort of comfortable embracing that now is it sounds like it's a solo mission and it's never a solo mission mm-hmm. and it feels like it sort of excludes a whole bunch of other people that work for you and work with you to help you build a business. So I think sometimes it feels, you know, some of the examples of entrepreneurship we get shown are quite often these sort of, they get this sort of halo effect around them and they're sort of drawn out as an individual that's got these special qualities. But actually so much of building a business is about who you bring in and how you bring them in. And I think it sounds like we're all quite aligned on sort of the value of uh, working with others. And that's that's certainly what drives me as well is the, you know, I get excited when I think, who can we hire next? And how can we get the best trend forecasters in the world to come work with us? Like how might we go about that? So sometimes I just think that word, for me, it feels a bit false because I think it's not, it's certainly not just me. I might be the person that had the idea, but I could not have done what I've done as one single person. Wouldn't it be possible? Yeah, I wouldn't call, my, I, I, maybe other people call me or see me as an entrepreneur, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself that. And perhaps I'm a little bit embarrassed by saying it because maybe I am. Um, I know there are social networks where you, you create an account and they call this options to call yourself an entrepreneur because there is an option to put as I'm, I'm an I am a, man, a managing director, you know. Mm. So I put myself as an entrepreneur, but I don't know, I feel a little bit comfortable. It's interesting what you said, though, about how you work with people. So I don't say that my staff work for me because I feel comfortable about that. For me, I work with them. They're, they're a part of Jump. Well, I think, that, I mean, there would be no business if there weren't Indeed. staff. We need people. And one of the things I say quite a lot is, our founder, which was Sir Peter Vardy, he famous, famously, I've made it famous, one of his quotes anyway, he said, none of us got to where we are today without a lot of help from other people. And he doesn't say without help, he says without a lot of help. And I, I think that's what you've just said, Joe and Rob. And I think, you know, linking back to the values, what Joel's just said, like one of our company values is inspire and be inspired. So we literally make sure that people feel like it's their job in the business, if you're part of our business, to inspire people mm-hmm. to what, whatever your touch point is, whether that is a big piece, whether you're, you know, you're delivering something or whether you're exchanging an email, but also around everybody in the business, recognising that they inspire other people in the business and everybody that they touch. And, and that recognition is actually quite tricky. We, we have to practice that. It's a, it's a habit we reference to. It's a value of behaviour in the business that we reference a lot. But I think it's important to recognise that, that because you do take inspiration from all, all around you, but you also are an inspiration sometimes in the people that, you know, you touch someone and during the day, like you're an, you can be an inspiration. Yeah, I think in that respect, although sometimes I might feel uncomfortable having that sort of entrepreneurial label attached to me, 
this really useful label when I'm looking out to be inspired by other people. It's really useful because it means that I can immediately categorize a group of people that are taking risks, that are running businesses, you know, all the things we've talked about. You know that that's what that person is doing when they have that label. So it's it's actually a really useful label as well. I think that's right. And that's part of the aim of this podcast is to say these are entrepreneurs and we need to have role models that are entrepreneurs so that they become relatable and it becomes... I think normalised and it shows people and there'll be people listening. You can do this. And there's people that have started from a very rural background in North Northumberland without even a shop and can create a business as successful as you have done, Joe. I think that's what it is. It's like, let's see a broader expression of what entrepreneurship actually is. I think the people we associate with entrepreneurship in the past would have been a very particular kind of person. And it's just, it is nice to see a broader expression of what that means. And I think in that respect, I'm happy to kind of wear that badge if it means that other people could even question, well, is that what an entrepreneur looks like? I think that's valuable in itself that people would question whether you are or not, because hopefully it opens up the door for them to see themselves in the same way. I agree. Now, all of you have said that having your teams are super important to you. So let's talk about how you've built those teams. What was it like? Tell me about your first employee and how it felt to suddenly feel I'm actually an employer now. Rob? Uh, well, I, when I, in my early career, I started working for an award body and I developed a number of platforms and systems for them as a software de- developer. I remember Chris who's my technical director at Jump. Chris and I have been, I've actually been married to Chris in a work sense longer than than actually been married because Chris and I worked together for over 20 years. And I remember when I, I decided to leave the warden body, I was still self-employed, but I remember leaving and Chris contacted me to say, can I come and work with you? Not, And I said, well, it's with me, not for me, because I, I don't like that term. And Chris has been with me ever since. That was my first first employee, and it was easy, I suppose, then. It was easy because Chris wanted to come and work for me, but after that, trying to find the right staff, building the culture, finding the right people, that made mistakes over the years when I questioned getting the wrong people to work with me and, um, you know, the promise of the earth and, and don't deliver. That's one thing that I've experienced. And there are lots of people out there who want a job, but it's finding the right person who fits within the culture of the company, I would say. When I interview now, I don't look at... Qualifications are important, of course, but that's not the driving factor for me. I don't necessarily want to employ somebody who has a degree. For me, it is fitting in with the team, but it's the passion to learn. That is it for me. Uh, you know, we, we, we have a, an apprentice, Alana, in our marketing team. She's, she's amazing. She came through an apprenticeship because degrees weren't, weren't her thing. And uh, I think it's really important that we employ people who have a, ranging, a range of qualifications. It, not, it's not everything. You know, I don't, I didn't ha- I don't have any, de- any degrees, but that was a challenge for me, I have to say, through my career, because I wasn't taken seriously because I didn't have a degree. People focused on having a degree. Well, I have a ton of experience. And that's simply because I, there was that driving factor, you know, that thing to learn and and I suppose I had to prove, maybe it was because I wanted to prove myself because I didn't have a degree. So but I think there's many people who want a job uh, and uh, it's just finding the best, the best people. And matching those people to the right culture for Absolutely. them because each of your businesses will have their own identity and their own culture and require 
different people with different values to join you. Yeah. Um, June, when you were building your team, which you've mentioned earlier on, you've now got 20 something. 22, I think. 22 yeah. staff, which is a big responsibility to, to make the payroll every month, amongst other things. How have you focused on getting the culture piece right as you've grown the team? Well, I've learned a lot along the way and trend forecasters don't just grow on trees. So they're really hard to find and they're not in the northeast. They live in Amsterdam and Paris and New York and London and all of the sort of fashion capitals where, you know, all of the all of the other trend uh, forecasting companies and fashion houses are all located. So for a lot of years, it was my job to find the right people and then do the job of the tourist board and force them to move to the northeast, which was really tricky. And we have people working from California and Vienna and all sorts of incredible cities. And I used to invite them for interview and then take them on the best possible cultural tour of Newcastle that I could possibly muster. And of course, you're still comparing that to, you know, LA and Vienna. So it's re- it was really, really difficult to do that. And actually that really shifted in the pandemic. We realised that we were then able to work in a way where we could access talent that didn't involve them being in the Northeast. And it's been a massive game changer for us. It has meant that we've had to keep a special eye on making sure that we do recruit within the region as well. So we have a separate sort of agenda for making sure that we maintain and grow jobs here and to make sure that we're, we're accessing talent either through the universities or the colleges, or as you said, that a degree isn't important to us. We have staff who don't have degrees and that's the only way to get true diversity into a business is to be recruiting from a broader pool than than can get to an afford university. The pandemic, which is it really messed things up in a lot of ways for us, has enabled me to hire a team that, that isn't all based in the Northeast. So we have 22 people, I think 16 of which are based in the Northeast and the rest are based in Brighton and Cheshire and Nottingham and London, all over the place. And then we have a network of freelancers who are based all over the world on top of that as well. You know, would I have learned that if I hadn't been forced to change the business model, which allowed us to work remotely with people, I think I would still be doing tours of Newcastle and taking people to the Baltic and the Lake Art Gallery and the best restaurants to try and persuade them to move here. You know, I mean, the North East on a beautiful sunny day is quite spectacular, but it's a very different proposition to um, other major fashion capitals. And I don't associate, maybe I'm wrong, the Northeast as being the fashion capital of Europe. So you obviously did a very good job in attracting people in the first place. And that would have been about talking about the opportunities within the business and to be based here. Well, yeah. And I mean, last week when we have like quarterly connection days where we invite the whole team together to be in the same place for two or three days every mm-hmm. quarter, which we we just spend time together. We try not to do anything that, you know, it's no laptops, there's no work, no email, nothing. We just spend that time together because we're all working remotely the rest of the time. And we spent the day at the beach. We went to Time Moms, we went to the beach, we had fish and chips. We did a litter pink for Surface Against Sewage and the sun was shining. We had a great day. So really, you know, yes, it is a fantastic place to be, but you don't have to force people well, I don't have to force people to, to move here to enjoy and appreciate what it has got to offer now, um, but they can still come and enjoy it. And they had the best time. And then I'm interested post-COVID when you're not all together. That's great that you bring people together once, you know, every quarter. When you're all working remotely, how do you build that? How have you managed to build the team and that connectivity when you're not seeing each other on a regular basis? I mean, we, we lean on those connection days. We use that. We talk about it as a sort of reservoir you know, topping up the reservoir. Because I think if you're going to have in any business and certainly in a fast-paced business, you're going to have lots of challenge, lots of difficult conversations, lots of tricky things to deal with. And you need to be 
but able to understand each other really well when you're making those decisions. And so you have to have that good connection. You, you need to be able to lean on the, the goodwill that you created on the connection days to get you through the quarter before you all meet up again. I mean, we've done payroll pattern mapping with Duo and with Sarah and the team. So we we know ourselves and each other pretty well as far as businesses go. And we lean on that massively. So yes, we have the quarterly connection events, but we never start a meeting or, you know, anything without sitting down first and thinking, right, what what is my outcome for this meeting? How do I need to show up to this? And what from my behavioural map, which qualities do I need to bring forward and which ones do I need to dial back in a little bit in order that I get the right response from this person or the right outcome from this meeting? So the, the behavioural mapping is it's pretty critical actually. We're we're quite serious about how we've how we've taken that over the years. It's been a bit of a game changer for us because we can understand the motivations of others without having to guess at it all of the time. Which is when a lot of confusion arises when you say, Oh, that person looks angry. I wonder, oh, maybe they're not in a great mood. And actually you just haven't fully understood what that person can bring to the table. I think that's right. And so do you think then therefore it's easier or more difficult to manage the team post pandemic? I'm getting the sense that you find it you just do it differently and maybe are more conscious of how you manage them than you were prior to yes. the pandemic. And undoubtedly I've upskilled in that area because it was, you know, when I set up this business, I did it so I could work on my own in my bedroom and listen to the radio and just do colour palettes all day long. That was my intention. So working with others was not on the radar. It was not something that interested me. If I could have got away with not even speaking to clients, I probably would have done that if I could send them a package of work. So I've had to be able to build the desire to connect with others and to work with others. And you know, I'm really introverted, so it's very difficult for me to sometimes put myself out into that situation, but I've had to learn. And I wish I'd started learning that sooner, but I think that's one of the things. It's not just how we came out of the pandemic in terms of the the, the, the structure of the business. It was my desire to run a business and connect. You know, I realised that the success of the business was completely dependent on how I managed people, how I trusted people. You know, when people work remotely, you have to have so much trust and know that they are there to do their best work and provide an environment where they can do that. And also, I was leading a business pre-pandemic that looked a bit like a sort of, you know, the, the sort of garden rake effect. You know, there was me and then like loads of people that reported directly yeah. to me. Genius with many helpers. Yeah, is there? Yeah. And I, that was not useful. It was highly stressful environment to be in because people came to me for the answers all of the time and I thought my job was just to you know, to have the answers to their questions and I learned that if I could have sort of four to five people is about my max of people reporting to me and learn how to get the right messages through them team members to the rest of the team that worked better so that was a, that was probably the most significant shift. Yeah and that's a shift that lots of people take at the point where they're scaling that business because it allows you to scale more effectively, I believe, than being that one person with everybody reporting into you. Sarah, from your point of view, what have been the biggest challenges that your business has faced, whether that is something through the pandemic or, or something else? You know, thinking about the resource piece, one of the biggest challenges is, I think, when you're scaling a business is to recognize when's the right time to bring people in and at what level. Because Often you default to bring in people who maybe don't have the experience that the investment costs are a little bit lower. But there does come a time where you need to really make decisions that are quite critical from a point of view and investment perspective, bringing in people at a different level. And I think we see that a lot with businesses we work with, but we've also experienced it. Like in and also looking at 
if you're in a service-based business, which we were predominantly a consultancy business, it's like every time you win a new piece of business, you then got to bring in more people and the fixed costs go up. So we've been, during COVID, COVID actually was a brilliant time for Laura and I to invest some time in scaling the productization of the business. So for us, we got time to develop our product, the behavioral map and tool, and 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 just and and do the recording and, and actually fast track the plan. Coming out of that, we then had to maneuver the business, and we're we're currently doing this. It, uh, it's a tech business first and foremost now, and the consultancy side is something that we we still do. But we wanted to scale a business in a way that didn't require just more people and more of our time. So although we still have a, a, a nicely sized team, we outsource work, we have great suppliers that we work with. I think for us, that maneuver has allowed us to be able to have more flexibility in the choices we make because we're not having to deliver as much face to face and we'll be able to work on the business strategically more. But also to, to have a product we can, we can scale you know, we've got a plan for that. And I think some of the challenges during COVID is we had a lot of retainer clients who stayed with us, but they they pressed pause or they reduced the their spend with us, rightly so. And that was tricky for us. And it kind of amplified the need for us to have income streams that weren't just relying on us, us delivering a face-to-face service. So We've kind of rode the storm through that. I know with scaling, it's never, you know, we've talked about this earlier, it's never a plateau. It's never, and there's never just the spikes. People often talk about the real highs and the real lows. But, you know, for us, when it's almost feels like it's standing still, that's not a great place for us. Laura and I have a little bit of shiny new new thing syndrome. We get attracted to new projects, new ideas. And so we have to be careful not to to just add more things in the mix because that is a challenge for us. It's a, it's a real challenge. So we use external people to help steady the ship a little bit with that and question the ideas. We've got better at doing it ourselves. So, you know, we recently launched a journal. We developed a, a, an actual, it's a performance and productivity tracker book. Um, it's it's going to be launched in a, in a few months. And that became, you know, it's a distraction if you're not careful. New things can be, I don't know if you guys suffer the same thing, but typically we get easily distracted. So it's just about making sure that we're focusing on the things that fit in with the plan and having that plan nailed down and having it able to flex, but so that we don't get too easily distracted. I think that's right because entrepreneurs like new ideas. New ideas are exciting and fun and can be a distraction. But when you're scaling a business, one of the things that I've observed is not many businesses scale every single year consistently. It's not a linear straight growth. There's ups and downs, but then there's a lot of periods where you stay stagnant isn't the right word, but you may be consolidating that level of growth before you're ready to then accelerate again. And and that makes it interesting. But in that period where you're consolidating, there is a tendency to get a bit bored. And that's where the distraction could come in. And I think that's what you're saying, Sarah. For sure. And, you know, it's a challenge to to keep the team feeling like you've given a consistent message and that you're not jumping from one thing to another too much. Because, you know, if, you, if you're leading a business, like consistency is, is sometimes you do need a level of consistency for the team to be able to know where they're going. And we do have a team who love change and who are on board with that. We have to be careful about how we communicate it. And sometimes we can feel a little bit, you know, we're, we're fast paced hard to keep up sometimes in our business people say that to us they're like wow are you doing more new stuff and I think uh, Laura and I have, have really I would say over the last year really sort of 
focused in being way more sort of disciplined with that and also let the team influence some of the decisions that we're making, you know, we get their input on that. From an inspirational point of view, I think it's important for business owners to remain inspired because that keeps your energy levels up. Um, How do you individually keep your energy levels up? How do you maintain that level of inspiration to keep going? I mean, for me, like being a trend forecaster, we're in the world of inspiring. That's what we have to do. We have to inspire brands and retailers to help them produce products or marketing messages for you know the the, the mass market. So we, it's all about inspiration. So for me, it's about being able to sort of step away sometimes from where you know where's the line between inspiration linked to work, which is it's kind of my profession to do that, and things that inspire me and give me some energy back. And I get a lot of energy back from spending time on my own and and I need that downtime. So sometimes I'll just sort of withdraw a little bit. I read a lot. I read loads, but I don't read business books that much now. I go through spells of doing that, but I read a lot of novels. I'll read sort of inspiring books, but I, I need that headspace to sort of take myself away from anything that could turn into a business idea or anything that would plug me back into the business. I feel that I need to separate that out. But I also really value going for a coffee with other business owners and just being able to talk about what it's like to run a business. So there are lots of people that I'll phone up and have coffee with. And that that really helps me. It, it That's kind of gives me some energy back because uh, it can be really depleting, really depleting. You know, it's, running the business is it's so multifaceted. There are so many things going on um, and you know sometimes you're making really big decisions on a daily basis and yeah there's a, a lot happening so, so sometimes it's about staying inspired and having the energy for it but making sure that that is a, a separate space that I can you know otherwise I think it would it, it could be very exhausting. What, what really inspires me is when I drive past the theatre we rebranded people's the posters that are on the wall we've been working with them for six years now in this particular style that we've been recognised for. We built their website, but every time I drive past that, I've got goosebumps now, my hands and my arms are standing up. I, there's a sense of pride from that because we did that and that's what I'm trying to instill into the, the, the stuff that we have that they, when they see their product out there that they've worked on as having that sense of, of pride for being involved and uh, it's pretty cool, actually, yeah. when you see something like you've done. Do you see that, Jerry, in yours? Because you're forecasting trends. Do you see those customers, and you work with very large businesses, adopting your advice yeah. and then seeing the products on the shelves? And you're saying, it's in that shade of green. That's the shade of green we told them. <laughs> well, even, you know, like we've got clients that I'm probably not allowed to name, but, you know, the biggest toy brands in the world as our clients. And when they produce toys and games for children... You know, these are, this is the next generation of kids that have been allowed to play in a way that they haven't been allowed to play before or, you know, where there might be a, a change of skin colour, a, a range of skin colours available on a doll or uh, a doll that's now available in a wheelchair that has ne- we've never seen a doll in a wheelchair before. And those products are produced because of a report that we have done on the future of inclusivity and that report would have been written two years ago and influences the product stream for that brand over the course of two years. You know, then then we see that product, we see the marketing for it, we see it go live, we see ch- seed in store, we see children playing with these toys and saying that it's changed their lives to be able to find a doll that they can 
they can recognise that looks like them. I mean, that is so pretty cool, really isn't cool. it? It's really cool. And Sarah, for, for you, your business is slightly different. How do you go about bringing inspiration into your own life and then taking that into the business? A little bit like Joe, really, you know, surrounding myself with people. I have touch points. I have people that I spend time with, other business owners. But I think for, for me, that time out, topping up the energy bucket, as it were. So Anna, I don't strive for like balance. I think balance is a word that's a little bit overused and probably very difficult to achieve, but work really hard on transitioning through the roles that I have in my life, you know. So when I come out of a business space, I'm in a, you know, a, a daughter, a, a partner, a, a friend role, moving through that. But for me, a lot of my inspiration comes from just being outdoors with people, I travel. I love to travel. Like last year, I did a, a trip. I think we covered it. We did a, a trip to Costa Rica. I came back a totally different person, just refreshed, re-energized. I'd met people from all over the world. It, I, I thought about products. I thought about ideas. I mean, if I go away, I've just come back from a little trip. I come back, I'm like, right. It's just re-energized. And I think it's really important when you run a business that you take time out in whichever way works for you. For me, travel's a big one. Or just, and it doesn't have to be exotic travel. It could just be a weekend away. It can be walk on the beach. I live near Timemouth. It's it's taking time out of the business to just, and I, I listen to a lot of audio. I don't listen to as many books, but I love podcasts now. And just listening to other people's stories and, and journeys, I think uh, for me, that's, that's a big, it's a big piece. But, you know, we we run a, a women's residential, a women who scale business, business owners. And one of the reasons we did that originally, we started to work with women because we wanted to help more women into board level positions and more, owner, you know, more, more women owning their own business. And we did that. And to be fair, we get as much out of that as what they do, you know, like surrounding yourself with women who are doing amazing things. It's just it really feeds us, you know, as a business. Well, I came to one of your retreats, you Sarah, and it was absolutely amazing in the Lake District. And you just felt removed from the day-to-day and actually taking myself out of the day-to-day busyness and just having three three days, I think it was, in somewhere absolutely stunning to focus on yourself. It came back completely refreshed. Yeah. And it's really critical because a lot of people say, I, I can't afford the time or the, the money to, to for that sort of thing. It feels like an indulgent when it's for yourself. But actually what you bring back is way more valuable than the investment you put in. And I think sometimes we do find it hard giving ourselves permission to take time out to work on you personally. We generally get tied up. I say we, but business owners, you generally get tied up in the day to day. And actually giving yourself permission to do that, but it's so valuable if you do. Well, I don't know. How do you then come up with ideas? Because I think I personally find it really difficult to come up with my best ideas in front of a computer screen. I feel I get better ideas when I'm, this is just me personally, out running or being outside or doing something away from being in front of that screen. Well, I, 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 I do. I mean, I, I've got two Labrador pups. They keep me busy and I'm out walking with them all the time. I, get, I do. I guess I do have some time that way. But also I have a team who also are inspirational. They, they come up with ideas all of the time as well. And it's about discussing them in, within, within a team that's just very creative. You know? Now, you've just mentioned you've got Labrador pups. Let's do the dog poll. Who has a dog in this room? Fox Red Labrador. So, so Jason has a Fox Red Labrador. I don't currently, but have had dogs all of my life. So, so, so um, 
been asking all the entrepreneurs who come on the podcast and how, how owning a dog seems to be a characteristic of an entrepreneur. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, okay, well, the one other thing I want to talk to you about was mentoring. Um, and it's a big part of what we do at the Entrepreneurs Forum is providing or well, connecting business owners to other business owners. Because I think, as you've both said, you like having coffee with the other business owners. And I think it's really useful to have role models and other people that you can turn to for advice. My question is, have you sought to use mentors in your own businesses? Rob, you've already mentioned that you did. How did that relationship come about? Well, I have to say I've used many over the years, bad experiences with quite a few of them, I have to say, because it was more about the money they were earning rather than the advice they were giving me. Two years ago, during the pandemic, so when my business partner left the business, I wanted to reset everything, but I needed some help to do that. So I think um, Chris Chandra Silver, he's a mm-hmm. member of Entrepreneurs Forum. He's been helping me over the past two years. So he's, he is my mentor. I guess he's our de facto chairman. Being, being manager director, it is quite lonely, I have to say, but Andrew, is, he challenges me all the time. And, it, and that's what I need. Often, if I make a decision, I, I want to make sure that it's the right decision. Chris and Andy, you are my fellow directors. They, they're, they're great. But Andrew is disconnected, but he has he does provide that that service to me. And that's who I met this morning for coffee. And I've already got a list of tasks. I know there's an email waiting for me as soon as we finish this podcast for stuff that I need to do. But it, he, he's there for a reason. It's, he's, he's got a huge amount of experience and, and he's been... We've transformed the business over the past two years, I have to say, because of, of Andrew's team. And I work very closely with, with my team. So I, I can't imagine, if he listens to this, he'll probably be smirking, but I can't imagine not having Andrew around or, and that support. And I think even, even being in business for so long, you need that kind of support. You need support from, from other people. And that's what I've done over the years. I've surrounded myself with people who know more than me. And I can use for advice, and they're um, quite happy to do it. And that's good advice, isn't it? So you, you can't do everything by yourself. So you find other people who can help you, and there are everybody's willing to help, particularly in the northeast. Jim, have you used mentors in your business growth? Yes, the first mentor I had was actually I was in like a nurture pool with the Entrepreneurs Forum when I first set the business up, and Entrepreneurs Forum set me up with Julie Drummond, which is just about the best mentor you can get in the region, and. I learned a lot from Judy and really admired the way that she has built Drummond Central. And yeah, there were many things that she was doing that I've, I've just thought, how how has Judy done that? I need to learn. I need to go and figure out how she's done that. So she was a massive inspiration to me. And then, as I said, I have loads of copies with loads of people, people like Darren Richardson and Carrie O'Rose, loads of different people that I sort of that have been running businesses for longer than me or in different, slightly different fields or that or running agency-style businesses where they understand some of the challenges that we face on the agency side of the business. And the mentors that don't actually know their mentors as well. Yes. So Carrie probably thinks that she's just going for coffee with me, but really, <laughs> I've got an ulterior motive, and it's always something that she's done that I haven't figured out yet. But, and, and that's kind of, to be honest, now that's sort of vice versa. There were times when I thought, I need to ask Carrie this question, and now she'll phone me and say, how did you do you organise your culture event? Or how did, you, how did you write that job spec? You know, so it works both ways now. So I must have learned some sense of course, just go out and share something back. Um, but we've got a non-exec director as well, Ross Goliath, who we've had for a number of years, and he's a brilliant sounding board, knows the business inside out. We're like chalk and cheese. We approach the business from a completely different way, and he's really good at getting me to see the business through a different lens because I see it as a 
as a creative and a trend forecaster and an ideas person first. And I don't sometimes see some of the some of the other stuff, you know, the some of the growth hurdles that we might face if we go after new projects. So he's a really good lens on things for me. Yeah, so both of you use lots of mentors. How about you, Sarah? Yeah, I think for me, mentor coaches, advisors, and non-execs, like all of the above, I think it's absolutely critical to get diversity of thinking in your business. Even when, even if you're small, I would say, you know, some people think that they've got to wait. Sometimes people think I need a mentor when I'm inexperienced, but I loved what Rob said there. Like actually the longer you're in your business, sometimes the more insular you see things, you need that challenge, external challenge. And, you know, it depends on whether it's someone who's advising or mentoring. I think for, for us, we, you know, Laura and I definitely do a lot of coaching with each other, but it would be really bad if we didn't recognize that we have certain behavioral traits missing at the top level in our business. So again, we have a non-exec director, Ross, the same one as Joe, who's worked with our business for a number of years now. He is absolutely the opposite to us in a lot of ways. So he challenges us in a way we just, we wouldn't ourselves internally. We recently used a coach who had done something similar to us and, and very successfully scaled it. And we used her for a period of time. So for me, I'm a great believer that finding the right person at the right time, because you need you need a mixture of people to to give you their perspective on things. So, you know, having that circle of people you can pick the phone up to. I do some walk and talks with people where, you know, I meet them on a the morning and we go for grab a coffee and walk and talk. I think that's really useful for me. So um, Toby Bridges, uh, uh, he's someone that we we do that and we just we, we go for walks and we talk about all the stuff that's going on in our space. So I think it can come in all different shapes and sizes, but I definitely think it's critical to make sure that you do have that external thought process because with all the will in the world, when you're in your business, you can't always see the things that are right in front of you and you can't see it. We recently had someone look at our business and she described it in a way that just hit both Laura and I really, really quickly. She just said, you've got too many planes on the runway and you're trying to take them all off at the same time. And she was just like, you, you might need to need to look at that. And it just made sense to us. And we kind of knew it, but someone external telling us who didn't know us, didn't have a relationship with us, didn't, you know, there was no subconscious bias there. And she just said what she saw. And I think that can be really critical. And from a mentoring perspective, I think sometimes having someone who can also be there for you personally, where you maybe can share things that you wouldn't share with people within the business and you know you've got their, com- you know, their confidence, you can... You can share things that's 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 really really valuable. So you know the Entrepreneurs Forum has a great program. I think, and whether that's at peer level, or whether it's with people who've just done things that are different to you, whether it's someone from a totally different sector or a similar sector, I think it's it's about finding the right match. Finding the right match. I completely agree, and perhaps it's taken me years to find the right match. I have to say, uh, and I, I we've had during Jump's sixteen years, we've we've had a number of mentors who. I won't name any names, but you know that they're, 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 you probably will recognise the name because they work for for big organisations. It's only because I've met them for a coffee or at an event or traverse forum event, and then I'll ask them for some advice, and then you get the main. But I think it, it is definitely down to personality. I mean, um, Andrew helps my um, management team, so Chris and Andy and my marketing manager have one ones. It's very much patient. It's like a doctor patient confidentiality. It's really important. I never find out what the discussion's about unless it's obviously going to affect the business in a big way. 
and that's really important. And I think it is definitely about finding the right person and about personality. And finding somebody who's made mistakes themselves, you know? Um, I think that's really... Yeah, I think encouraging your team to go and find a mentor outside of the business is one of the most important things you can do for them. We've got a people culture manager. She you know, is the only person in our business that does that role. And I can by line manage her so we can have conversations about the day-to-day stuff. But sometimes she just, just needs to go and speak to someone else who gets her role that has got nothing to do with our business. And she's really well networked in the Northeast. She knows loads of other people who are working in people and culture and HR. And she gets a lot of value. She's got a mentor that she meets every month that gets a lot of value from that. So I think it's just a real, you know, if you value that as a company, you say to people, we encourage you to do that. I think that's the sort of first step. And the next step is, I think people panic when you say, please go and find a mentor. They think they have to sort of make this formal proposal. And actually, it can be as informal as just meeting somebody for coffee or saying, I've got a particular problem. I think you've got the skills that might help me crack it. Could you spend an hour with me on a Teams call? And people generally will give you that time. I mean, it's quite difficult if someone asks you to mentor them, you feel like you've been asked to recommit to something big. But if someone asks you if you can spend an hour helping them crack something on a Teams call, most people will give you that time. So it's just trying to break down the sort of enormity of what a mentor can be. But I also think like I know a little while ago, I was stagnating a little bit because I didn't have anybody challenging me other than the chair of the business back when I was part of Grand Six and and I wasn't meeting that person enough. So I felt like I was almost stagnating a little bit and I needed, I recognised I needed someone external to challenge me, to get me out of my comfort zone, into that growth zone and think differently. I needed someone to be disruptive with us and I, I, and I, I, I sat there for a little while unknowingly so I think having someone where you're regularly meeting with them or different people you're regularly meeting with them, they will just help you make sure that you're continuing to be curious and that you're, yeah, you're pushing yourself and getting out of that comfort zone and, and thinking just differently. So I'm a massive advocate of coaches, advisors, mentors. Get all the help you can. And I yeah. think that's come across very clearly today is all of you have used lots of mentors in different capacities. So anyone listening to this, regardless of the size of your business, from when you're starting out to when you're established, ask for help. Go and have coffee with someone. Find those people that will bring that external challenge to your business and see where that takes you. Well, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. I can't believe it. Again, Mm -hmm. we've done a number of these. The time absolutely flies. So I'm going to finish with one question to each of you. And I'm going to start with Joe for a specific reason, because Joe is a trend forecaster Mm -hmm. and we're going to look forwards in time now um, because we've come to the conclusion that entrepreneurs don't really retire ever. So if we take yourself forward to your 70th birthday, it could be your 80th birthday, don't really mind. But at that point, imagine you're in a room with all your friends, family, and the people that have influenced your life so far. What will people be saying about Joe? Well, this is such an interesting question because I'm part of a sort of group of CEOs and, and business owners. And we were asked to, to write out a sort of speech for our 80th birthday. And sadly, one of those people in that group did pass away unexpectedly. And at his funeral, they read out what he'd written down for his 80th birthday speech. Oh my, oh my yes. goodness. It's a, well, if you haven't done that exercise, do it because you're never going to, you know, you're never going to spend the time sitting down thinking, I wonder what I would write if that actually happened. But his was read out at his funeral. And I can tell you the three words that I took away from him were nothing really to do with how he's really grown a great business or he hired loads of people or anything like that. 
the three breaks I took away about him, they had a slideshow up, they had a lot of people come and speak about him, and that he was fun and he was caring and um, he was inspiring. And I just thought that would be good enough for me. If that if that was how people sort of got the, the impression of how I'd lived my life and the impact I'd made on others, that would be completely enough for me. So I think it's tempted to, you know, people talk a lot about legacy and like what are you going to leave behind? And there's a lot of kind of, pressure that I don't like linked to legacy. And yes, you want to kind of leave the world a, a better place if you haven't lived here. I think most people would agree they want to do that. But there's a lot of pressure these days, especially I think on business owners to sort of leave a legacy either in the Northeast or make some sort of imprint. But I think sometimes just to think about how does that how does that mean you're going to conduct yourself on a daily basis? How are you going to connect with people? How are they going to feel when they connect with you? And so, yeah, mine would be really simple. It would just be about you know, being fun to be around, being inspiring, doing some sort of good for others, which it would be really, really simple, I think. Well, I think you've achieved all three of those goals today. Well done. Rob, how about you? Well, I, um, I I wouldn't want it to be about how I've been in business. I think it would have to be a personal thing and it would be the qualities like loyal uh, and um, just a nice blog. I would like to think that's what, how people would see me. If I wasn't around and somebody was reading that, I would like it to be about business. I would like... You don't receive me. No, no, not at all. No, it's how I am in business is the way I am. That's just me. And I, that's how I conduct my business. And I think that's the way it should be. I would like to think that's that's how... Because a bit depressing really, isn't it? Well, can, yeah, can I just say... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this question was about a party, not a I was just about to say, can I just say, I'm imagine I'm a visual, so I'm imagining the party right now. And mine's on a beach somewhere hot, and I'm drinking uh, like a margarita. And um, the, there's a big group of people, and it's got work people, it's got... You know, all the people that are in my life are yeah. there. Family, friends. And, um, and we got it. We got it. Yeah, we could come. So we're all coming. Yeah. And especially Jo, she's fun. Oh, she's fun. But, you know, I just want to be memorable for the right reasons. Like, you know. I, you can I, drink 20 months. <laughs> I literally can't. I'm a real lightweight. <laughs> Here is the max. Um, but, yeah, for, for me, it would be about a celebration of people coming together that, I've played a part in their lives and they've played a part in mine. And without sounding too cheesy, I, I kind of agree with what Joe's saying. I wouldn't want it to be focused on the business per se, but the whole purpose of our business is to help people have better relationships, to live a better life, to understand themselves better, to be able to connect with people better. So it would be very people-centric, but fun, like humility, like sense of humour, like that's what it's all about. So it would be it would be a big ruckus and it would be on a beach somewhere, and um, and hopefully, yeah, probably be discussing the next venture or the next idea <laughs> or doing something. You know, that we've got a long list of things that we'd like to do. Maybe you know, a, a, a behavioural profiling tool for dating. You know, we've got we've got a book we're looking at writing. We've got all kinds of things going on. I'd like to think those things would be done by the time I'm seventy. But I'm sure there'd be another list somewhere ready to ready to tackle. Well, let's see what the next. <laughs> several years will take us and we will meet you on that beach <laughs> in many years to come but thank you very much to all of our guests today to Sarah to Joe and to Rob that's been a fascinating conversation I hope that those listening have got a lot from it and if you'd like to find out more about our guests they'll be in the intro on wherever you get your podcasts thanks very much thank you, thank you. thanks for having us
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Tune in next time for another exciting cast of entrepreneurs.